Broadcasting live from the labyrinth, this is The Monstrous Feminine, the podcast where horrible humans talk about horror. My name is Taya and I'm joined by my fawns, Mila, Louisa, and Zeba. And our last episode for the month is centered on the 2006 film Pan's Labyrinth, directed by Guillermo del Toro. This film was actually selected by our coven via Instagram, and so if you guys would like to participate in choosing any future films that we have, go ahead and follow us on Instagram where we do polls occasionally. If you would like to hear an extra bonus episode on the film The Fly, directed by David Cronenberg, then head over to our Patreon to hear bonus and extended episodes. Before we get into the film, go ahead and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, or the Apple Podcast app. You can find all of our links on our Instagram at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast. Pan's Labyrinth is set in Franco, Spain, during World War II. Ophelia, a young girl, and her sickly pregnant mother, Carmen, set off to meet her new stepfather, a cruel and strict military leader named Capitan Vidal. After their arrival, Ophelia's mother's condition continues to worsen and Ophelia struggles to adjust until she is led to the labyrinth by a fairy. In the labyrinth, she meets a fawn who tells her she's Princess Moana of the Underworld and must complete three tasks to prove her identity and return to her family in the Underworld. Mi nombre es Ofelia. ¿Quién eres tú? Yo. Yo. Yo he tenido tantos nombres. Nombres viejos que solo pueden pronunciar el viento y los árboles. Yo soy el monte y el bosque y la tierra. Soy un fauno. So, why do you guys think Guillermo del Toro is so great at his monster movies and like the way that he makes monster narratives? Honestly, I don't think this comparison is made enough, but I think Bong Joon-ho and Guillermo del Toro both make really great monster movies because they make their monsters almost sympathetic. When I was in my emo period, I used to always like reference that quote that was like, people fear what they don't understand, but they do it in a way that doesn't sound like a 13 year old girl on Tumblr. <laughs> they do it very well. I know that Guillermo del Toro takes like a lot of inspiration from like old, old sort of folk tales and myths and things. Like I know he loves Arabian Nights. And Frankenstein, he did like letters to Frankenstein with Margaret Atwood, I think. And he also did like a monster exhibition and the letters to Dr. Frankenstein was displayed there. That was really cool. I saw a really, there was a funny quote actually. And it was um, a Samantha Bergson uh, article on IndieWire. And it was a recent one. And Del Toro was basically saying like how his production crew sometimes are like, what about certain things he suggests? Like, And he referenced this film and he was like, what is this American dressed as a fawn doing in a fascist period movie. And he said, the movies I try to do never make sense. I've never pitched a movie and somebody went, oh wow, Del Toro outed. I thought I was doing Pan's Labyrinth for a small audience. He said, same with The Shape of Water. I had no idea that anyone wanted to see a fish get funky. I think that's broadly kind of what you're saying. Like, why is he so good at making monsters? Maybe because he kind of goes out of the box. They're so memorable. Even if you haven't seen Pan's Labyrinth, you might know like the eyeballs on the hands. Like, and you've never seen a Guillermo del Toro movie in your life. Like, I think he just makes very iconic imagery, but also like you're saying like sympathetic characters or like not even sympathetic is the right word necessarily, but like they're not soulless in the way that a lot of monsters are just like dead-eyed killers, you know, nothing going on, no inner world. We can assume that they have an inner world even if we don't know what it is. They do take away a bit of the soul of the monster. Like no story is given to him. 
or her. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they, them. <laughs> no story is given to them. And like you were saying, Taya, with the host and like with Shape of Water. I only hear it in Zeba's imitation of Versace now, Shape of Water. Shape of Water. <laughs> <laughs> They're given so much heart and like you said, that sympathetic lens to it. And also they actually strip away a lot of the like allegorical meaning of the monster which is like been the case for decades with the host like it's less about the monster and it's more about the aftermath of obviously what happens and more importantly about the family drama in shape of water it's about like their relationship that is where the magic is is that they focus on relationships and less on the spectacle of it mm, yeah there's a lot of great world building too like on top of you know, everything else. Like, a creature feature can exist almost in a void, like you said, like, like if the blob had not had communist ties or Cold War ties or whatever the situation was, it could have existed just because that's what the blob does. And I think that I'm okay with that in creature features, but I think what makes, like, these types of movies special is that, like, there's so much created around it that you can chew on for a long time. Yeah, I think they're both really great at finding the specific period in which a film should take place. Everyone views these movies from such a different lens because they're able to encompass so many different narratives and such a relatable experience of like humanity. And there's someone for everyone to identify with in the stories because they're so complex that they're not just like, this is the good guy and this is the bad guy and this is who you root for and this is who you root against because everyone is doing something in the movies and that's a lot more realistic like as we were saying in the Godzilla movie like the villain villains in quotation marks weren't these like comical bad guys who are so easy to like identify and root against and be like oh they're so awful it's a lot more like humanistic and I feel like the best movies are the ones that portray humanity as being more complex as like an easy black and white good and bad. Pan's Labyrinth, I don't really consider it a creature feature but there are creatures within it so we'll give it a pass but like watching these films is so interesting because we are able to identify with the feelings of alienation and being misunderstood and having people be afraid of you or being ostracized as the monster feels because there are layers given to it and it's not just like the thing that you're scared of and everyone's running from in the streets and I think that's what separates a really good creature feature film from a bad one. The Monstrous Feminine is on TikTok, so please leave us a comment. If you do engage with our content, you might just get a shout out in our next episode as our Witch of the Week. This episode, our Witch of the Week is Bro One The Reup, love that name, from TikTok, who commented on our Shark Week talk and said, love y'all. We love you. Love you, boo. I hope you get the reup. Friendly reminder that we're also on Patreon. For £1 a month, you gain access to our Discord. For £3 a month, you get to hear a cut discussion from our main episodes. And for £5, you get all that plus a bonus episode. Please support us. Any contribution helps. I used to be really obsessed with this movie when I was a kid. What age were you guys when you saw Pan's Labyrinth for the first time? 25. I watched it yesterday. I think I watched it in high school originally. I fell asleep. 
And so I had to dip back in with my adult mind. But I know people who watched it like as children are affected by it very differently than people who watched it when they were grown. Yeah, I talked about this in the first episode that I, I accidentally watched it. Did you think you were watching Labyrinth with David Bowie? Well, like that's what I said in the episode, but I don't think that's true because so you I hadn't seen Labyrinth. And there was definitely a movie I thought it was. I'd seen it a sleepover and I was like, I want to rewatch this. I don't know if it was Labyrinth, whatever. It had a Labyrinth in it. I think I was eight. I don't think this film is for children. Yeah, children. I think it is though, because like I watched this film for the first time when I was a kid. I found it like very family friendly. The only part that like scared me was the end. Um, there's some pretty violent parts in this. I saw this in 2006, so let me do the math. I was about 10. I was like very afraid of like the part where um he made him count to three because he had a stutter and he was like, if you can count to three, I won't kill you. That was really scary for me. But like, other than that, like- There's a child in it, I'll give you that. I feel like the, the magical parts of it, like the escapism of the movie was something that like really resonated with me as, as a child because like in childhood so oftentimes you can only see what's in front of you. You meet people and you can't necessarily see like all the complexities behind them. Like she knew that Mercedes was really nice to her and she really cared a lot for Mercedes. And subsequently she ended up on that side. Obviously her stepfather was a, a bitch. <laughs> a bitch. Little bitch. Like, why did you put such a like playground insult so there? Bitch. To him, I feel like he was still just like the evil stepfather who disrupted this ideal of her family that still existed in her head because her father's death was like very fresh in the movie. But her mom needed to get married because she was poor. And it was like, well, this works. I don't love this man and he kind of sucks, but this works. My kids got to eat. And so like in her mind, she still wanted this interpretation of where her family was happy and her dad was still there and they still lived in their house. And so like in her mind, she only saw, yeah, this dude's a villain because he took what I had and Mercedes is good because she's the only person who shows me affection and gives me sweets and makes sure that I still have remnants of being a child and so it's like as a kid growing up in the world that I grew up in as you know I grew up in a very weird racist town like this movie really resonated a lot with me because I felt like there was so many things going on around me but like it was like an escapism movie it gave you hope however I can see (laughs) I can see how this could be very hard to digest. There are moments like that are like outwardly brutal that I think kids shouldn't see. And then there are things that are more subtle that I think you would not pick up on unless you were a little older. For example, when she's like, you know, she finally gets down there and there are all these kids shoes everywhere. And like, and then you have this like realization, like, fuck, how many kids have been sent down there? I don't think that's a realization that I would have had as a child. Like, I think it would have been like shoes. I don't think I would have made the association that like, those look like her shoes or like, wait a second, those are little, those are little feet. Like, I don't think that like things like that necessarily would have stuck with me, but absolutely they're like parts that are outwardly brutal. You mentioned that you really related to the portrayal of escapism and how that really resonated with like a childlike mindset tile. I just saw an interesting interview that Del Toro did about Ophelia's character and it was on female.com. He said it wasn't difficult to craft a young female protagonist at its core, and this is him quoting, because I believe that the way the character of Ivana is written for me growing up, I have often felt a lot of empathy for the women in my household through my mother, certainly, and my grandmother, feeling a lot of pressure as a boy to behave a certain way, like playing football and getting into sports. So I thought 
well, the opposite must be true for a girl. And then he said he wrote the script from a boy's point of view, conceding that I think the girl very much reflects the way I was as a kid. And I just thought that was interesting because I was like, yeah, why did he choose like a child, young girl protagonist? And besides for the fact that children are obviously more open-minded to like the magical and the fantastical and they're more innocent, obviously there's that element of the film. But I just thought it was interesting that he, he wrote this little girl as if like basically as a boy essentially just kind of flipped to different pressures like he said that he wrote it like how he felt as a kid we so often get like epics and stuff that always just have young little boys and you little girls never get representation like that so I thought this was like nice to have a little girl at the center she's a really interesting character she's rebellious she's mischievous she's intelligent I mean a little bit naive I think like the movies that I enjoy when I was younger really reflect so much about like the way that I saw the world when I was younger like I really enjoyed Taika Waititi's earlier works like boy I used to love that film still love it I was really excited when he did Jojo Rabbit because I felt like it was more similar to like his older movies that he did where there's a child that has like a fractured relationship with a father figure and they have like this point of view that gets broken of how they view this person that they thought was great. In Jojo Rabbit, it's kind of the same way because he has like this very fictionalized, weird, imaginary friend who's Hitler and he's in the youth camp and his mom is working for the resistance, hiding a young Jewish girl in the, in the attic and all of that like gets unwound. He ends up hiding the girl and going through like this elaborate like fracture of the way that he viewed the world. And I feel like this movie and Jojo Rabbit are actually kind of similar in the fact that they're like two children set in World War II and dealing with people close to them being in the resistance. Imagination is like an escapism from the world as the way it is and then having that breakdown because Ophelia like in the movie her imagination is so much of an escape that like when the worlds combine because she dies you don't know whether to be sad or happy at the end because you're like is this is she reunited where she's supposed to be or is this in her mind where she's imagining she is it didn't seem so much as her escape as it was more like she goes through all these tasks you said she's mischievous she's rebellious it's like a sort of moral disobedience that she finds her way here i don't know it has like a really strong moral compass and that i think is like completely anchored within the underworld a lot of like fantasy set up that binary between like modern life and like folklore values that we have forgotten using that in this film the sort of folklore-ish elements it seems like a way to sort of hint at a rediscovery of that. I'm thinking of it as escapism, not because I don't think the world that she's interacting with doesn't exist, but because if she was not hating her life and she was still living like with her mom and her dad and everything was fine, she would not at all be susceptible to this at all. I think the thing I'm stuck on though is there were other children. Like my thing is like, okay, yes, she's particularly intelligent and in a particularly bad circumstance, but there were other children led down there. And like, what was their reason? Like, wh like what did they gain from that escapism? Like they died, we can assume? Defon did say that he's been mistaken about the identity of the princess before. Yeah. And they failed the missions because they weren't. So why is she so sure it's her? She's so sure it's her because she hates her life. Everything in her current life is wrong. Okay, I can understand her naivety, but I guess I'm like wondering like, what are we supposed to learn from her as a character? Like, why is she unique? Like, why did everybody else not pass the test? Why, why was he mistaken so many times? Like, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions. Because she disobeyed the rules. The final test is basically here 
we need the blood of innocent give us your baby brother and she was like no there's a constant theme of rebelling here with like the rebels the literal rebels and then just rebelling against like expectations the screen rant article that i sent you guys said that this movie is basically a a tell of like choice versus obedience there is that line that was like like the doctor says to um says to the captain you obey just for like that for obedience's sake without questioning that's something only people like you can do like blind obedience um both as a child and then how that like magnifies on like a political scale for like a country like if you're a captain in an army and you have blind obedience so i guess it's praising her small rebellion also i think we should talk about the the little thing under the mom's bed that she had to give her blood the mandrake i love that thing i thought it was so cute growing a baby in you is so parasitic in a way and so like her feeding like this parasitic thing her blood to keep her mother alive felt like an exchange between like being raised by your mother and then raising your mother like a an interesting intersection of motherhood especially when she has the baby at the end and she's making this like mother-like sacrifice of dying rather than give this man her baby brother the weight of motherhood is shifted in the film because her mother is so sickly. She's taking on this task to nurse her mother back to health by having a parasitic relationship with a mandrake. I read one interpretation that was quite mon femme. Like she had to complete these tasks before the full moon. The like bleeding book, menstruation imagery. That's interesting in the sense that um, actually the fact that she was that age was entirely dependent on the actress because um, they couldn't find a child actor and then they liked her, so he went back and he aged her up a bit. But he said it worked better. I can't remember what uh, interview this was, but he said, but it actually ended up working better, Del Toro this is, because then he was presenting like a young girl on the cusp of womanhood. Like he used that phrase. I hate when people say that. When they talk about women getting their, young girls getting in their period, because they're still children. But I think what he meant was like a young girl starting to develop. The bodywork of all the creatures, like the fawn, I love the movements, but just, yeah, it, like I was saying, like we were talking about how people rely too much on CGI. I thought this was like the perfect mix where I'm like, you're giving personality to this monster. You're giving it like, like I said, that like twisty inner world. And I can see it just been like how it moves and how it like takes up space and the way it like interacts. Yeah, it gives like the vibe of something that is aged and has been there for a long time. Del Toro tweeted, The Pale Man represents all institutional evil feeding on the helpless. It's not accidental that he is A, pale, B, a man. He's thriving now. So he's like, that's a white man in power. But if you think about it, this has so much more impact during like the time period that it's in because white men in Europe had everyone starving in, in war. Actually, it was on Grade Saver. I was like, I don't know why Grade Saver's done Pan's Labyrinth. Am I going to quote them? Yes, I am. But Grade Saver was like, it said that the fawn, even though he helps her, like, so you can kind of, there's an anti-opposite interpretation. The fawn is like a symbol of Ophelia's self-empowerment. Like, he does help her, but he helps her in the sense that he, like, gives her a piece of chalk so that she can create a different door. And in that way, I could kind of maybe see what you're saying, Mila, in the sense that it's not necessarily escapism. It's like using importing fantasy like as a solution to your life rather but she's confronting it at the end like she has to confront the captain like take the baby and everything and she drugs him like there's a face off she doesn't run away i think it's significant that the pale man's um eyes are in his hands 
because eyes are supposed to be like the window to the soul and so I think that's significant in a way of showing like he doesn't have a soul um and also like with your eyes you see like other people and with your hands you take stuff so I think it also like shows that the way that the pale man in the movie sees stuff is only as like things that he can take for himself things that he can eat versus seeing people as actual people they're just objects in which he can obtain as food or just for fun to eat them i was gonna say this this movie but all del toro movies actually really remind me of all the movies from bollywood week in the way that like there is this implied catholicism in the way that there's like implied hinduism in most bollywood movies and this feels like yeah it's just like that subconscious presence of of certain kinds of mythology from certain kinds of cultures are just present in all art that comes out of the people who make it. And I think that magical realism bit is present in non-Western horror more often, I think, because it's present in non-Western myths more often. So like, I, I find that like American horror movies generally, they create the blob, right? Like they they create, it comes out of a meteor, it comes out of nowhere. There's almost no world building involved. I, we talked about like what defines a creature feature. And I think why I was struggling, like is Pan's Labyrinth a creature feature? I still don't necessarily think that it is, but I will give credit where it's due to cultural world building that is unspoken and doesn't need to be addressed so outwardly. It almost feels like like you're in the subconscious of the filmmaker to the point where like, I don't need you to like lay this out, like lay out the rules so concretely. I think that's what leads to very rich filmmaking. But sometimes the layers are like even invisible to us or like they exist both in the subconscious of the filmmaker and the audience watcher. And so I think that's why I'm like, is this a horror film? But I think that is me speaking on like my limitations of understanding like the boundaries of the genre. And like in my head, I'm like a creature feature is this because I am American and I have like a very strict idea in my mind of like where creatures come from. You know what I mean? Like they're created by science and they're not m mystical and magical. I think there's something to be said for, I think the similarities between this film and then like the films that we've discussed before that come from other parts of the world. I don't think it's a creature feature because like, I feel like when I think of creature features, it's not necessarily like that they have to come from a lab or anything, but there's like a singular creature in the film that is like the protagonist antagonist or something. But in this film, there's not necessarily a creature. The antagonist is Capitan and there's just creatures in the movie like in that case it would be like every sci-fi film and every fantasy film would end up being a creature feature and I think that's what makes it not quite lamb for me the creatures are there like there's a plot and there's a villain and there's characters and then there, there are creatures I think that also speaks to like the implied fantasy that comes out of other cultures like when we were talking about like oh Ah, gosh, what what am I thinking? I would think maybe it was a doppelganger movie. The oh, Metamorphosis. We're like, oh, they just go to a psychic. They just have that. Like, I think that I don't know if if the little girl, like Ophelia, had presented, hey, I met a guy in the woods. Oh, I wonder how people would have received it. Like, genuinely, like the, the fact that she keeps this all to herself. She told either her mum or the uh, Mercedes. She did say, oh, I met a fawn in the woods, and she said, oh, you should be careful of fawns yeah yeah so they they had like they had pretense for this world building already that they were like oh i know what that is uh another grade saver point was it said that the watch symbolized a captain's obsession with time and order that's obvious but then i was thinking more about the watch as like a symbol of like 
masculinity and stuff because he's like my father died in the war at this particular time and you learn in that moment that they're like a family of soldiers like a family of like instruments of war and terror it's like tied to their like fatherhood and and he says when he's about to die he's like tell my son and then she's like no your son won't even know your name so it's about like war and legacy and masculinity and i think that that was interesting Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Feminine. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, SoundCloud, and Spotify at The Monstrous Feminine Podcast and on Twitter at The Mon Femme Pod. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and follow us on TikTok at The Monstrous Feminine Pod. Brooms up, which is out.